Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. How many of you were here last week? Okay. We talked about the prodigal son. Before we read anything, let's, let's just pray and ask God's help. Lord, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you, Lord, for the presence of your spirit here today and through the worship and speaking to our hearts. God, I ask that you would continue that, that you would help me to communicate this morning as I should. Lord, help us to hear what we need to hear. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you remember, look with me, uh, Luke chapter 15. Let's read the first two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And you can hear the incredulous disgust in those words. Why in the world does Jesus receive, and we talked about how that word means to anticipate and gleefully receive, he enjoys, it looks like he is intentional in the receiving of tax collectors and sinners. It's unacceptable. That's what's going on. Remember last, last week I split you guys up into the Pharisees on this side of the room, sorry, and the tax collectors and the harlots on this side of the room, sorry, and we split everybody up. So this is uh, the Pharisaical sinners, and this is the good old-fashioned, stuck-out-in-the-world sinners, and both of you are in the audience. And that's what's going on in this parable. Jesus uh, is teaching, and there's a crowd and you've got a rough group of sinners and regular folk and people wanting to learn. And you've also got a crowd of the religious elite who are not thrilled with what you're doing, Jesus. Let's just give a brief understanding of first century Judaism and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, just so your brain is with us, because today's message is going to be on the prodigal Pharisee, which is in here, though you've probably never heard it said quite that way. The Pharisees and the scribes were really popular folks within Judaism and within the Jewish community. The scribes would be the scholars and the theologians, whereas the Pharisees were the practical deliverers of the message. They were the popular pastors, if you want to say it that way. They were the guys that led the show uh, when it came time to teach. They were the guys that disseminated the information that the scribes dug up. Now, the scribes taught as well, but the Pharisees were the popular teachers of the law, and they had very, very fancy dress and ornamentation to the way that they looked. They were a sect 
of Judaism that eventually led to uh, rabbinical Judaism, which I won't go into all of that, but that's who the Pharisees are. They're very proper and they're very socially respected. You remember some of the things Jesus said about the Pharisees. They love to have the best seat at the party. Remember that? You've heard Jesus say that? They love to be seen. They love to be recognized as the cream of the crop within the Jewish society. And if you just want to turn with me to Luke chapter 16, just turn your page over to verse 14 to hear something that you may not expect to hear about Pharisees because they were rule keepers, they were elite, they were socially on top of everybody else, and there's something odd that goes along with it in verse six, chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So throwing into the mix something simmering under the surface of their pious well-dressed, rule-keeping, eloquent speeches. When I walk into the room, you better show me respect. When I walk into the room, yes, I will take the best seat at the table. When I walk into the room, everybody defers to me. That's the life they were living. Paul says of his life as a Pharisee that all those things that were gained to him when he became a Christian, he considered them garbage and dung. And this is what he's talking about. The prestige the power, the privilege of the Pharisee. Has everybody got that in their mind? Now the Sadducees, anybody ever curious about the Sadducees? They didn't believe in the resurrection, which is why they are sad, you see. Okay, that's a way to remember that. The Sadducees, that's an old one, so if you've never heard it, yes. Um, But the Sadducees were basically the liberal theologians of the day. Liberal, not in a political sense, liberal in a theological sense, where they're like, yeah, we believe probably the first five books of the Bible, but there's no angels, there's no demons, there's no resurrection, there's no heaven, there's no hell. Pretty much, we just want to do a bunch of social things and everybody think we're awesome, and we're probably as connected to the Roman society uh, in thought process as we are to the church or the uh, Jewish thought process. And if you don't think that mindset still exists in churches, you have not been paying attention. That is running rampant in our world. The idea of believing that the Bible is the Bible is crazy talk. The idea of believing in a literal resurrection from the dead is crazy talk. The idea of literally believing in a literal Noah and a literal ark and all the animals two by two, crazy talk. It's really nice for a nursery mobile setting. But it's not okay to believe that it's true. Do you get what I'm saying? Run into Christians all the time that profess a faith that has zero connection to the God of Scripture. Those are the Sadducees. And they kind of fell out of popularity. They, they're just on the scene during the time that Jesus is here. So there's some background, and it's important to understand when we are looking at the crowd in chapter 15 with tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes, no Sadducees in this one, grumbling that he receives you guys. Because they wouldn't be caught dead with you guys. They wouldn't be caught dead even mentioning your name. It would defile them. They had reached and attained a level of holiness that 
I'm not even going to mention your name. Your family name makes me sick. And here's Jesus receiving you with glee. This is ridiculous. You're calling yourself a teacher? Now they knew by this point, by chapter 15, they knew that Jesus, He's healing people, stuff is happening. Everywhere He goes, He's attracting a crowd. What do you think that does to the socially elite if some newcomer attracts a crowd? What is the emotion that that creates? Anybody want to guess? Anger and jealousy? How dare Jesus have these crowds? We are the elite. We didn't sanction this guy. So they want to catch him in his words. And they want to ridicule him. The reason Jesus begins this teaching is in answer to the Pharisees grumbling. All of my life I have looked at chapter 15 as the point being that God is gracious and loving to sinners, which is what we talked about last week. And that is absolutely true. I spent all week last week talking about the gracious, loving nature of God, yet while you were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That is the point, and not just that, that the father gets up and runs, and all of the stuff we went over, the prodigal son is one of the great stories of Jesus known everywhere. But I think, and I, as I've studied this, that the real point of the story is about the older brother. And the reason I think that's the real point of the story is because the people he's addressing are like the older brother. So let's go over again the parables. We're not going to spend a lot of time, just in review. The first parable he tells is, the 99 sheep, or 100 sheep, and one of them goes astray, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Right? We all know that one. And that is 1% of the sheep. Jesus makes the point. 1% of the sheep missing, the shepherd goes and finds it. And look, look with me at verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Pharisees, you're grumbling that I'm receiving sinners. Well, let me tell you what it's really like in heaven. When one of these sinners is found, there's rejoicing. Friends and neighbors are called in to rejoice. By the way, it's also like a woman who had ten silver coins. And she loses one. So now we went from 1% to 10%. 10% of her wealth is missing. She searches everywhere. She finds it. And she does the exact same thing. She calls together all of her friends. She calls over everybody. And they have a party and rejoice. And look at verse 10. Jesus says, Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Hey, Pharisees and scribes, why am I receiving sinners? Because this is what I'm here for. I am here for sinners. How do I get to sinners? I go talk to sinners. That's what I'm doing. So he gives them parable number one, parable number two, and then he gives them parable number three with all the detail, and that is the parable of the prodigal son. And when you get down, when he comes back home, the prodigal, if you look at verse 22... 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began, they began to celebrate. Jesus has now said it three times, except we went from 1% to 10% to 50% because he had two sons and one of them is missing. Jesus is trying to drive home to the Pharisees the importance of what is lost being found and the compassion and the love of God for sinners because they don't have any. They don't have any at all. They only have one system, and that system is, look at me, I am holy, and you are obviously not. The only reason I even tolerate your presence is that when your dirty filth shows up, it highlights how shiny and clean I am. That is the only thing about you that I even like, but I don't want to talk to you, and I don't want to look at you, and I don't even want you to get closer to God, because I don't care about you. you. You see what I'm getting at? The only thing I want to do is tell you what you're doing wrong, and I rejoice and delight in that. And here's Jesus saying, there is a celebration in heaven over lost souls. There is a celebration in heaven over sinners repenting. The woman rejoiced, the shepherd rejoiced, the father threw a party and rejoiced, Jesus is driving a point home that heaven is a place of joy, not just over the righteous, but a place of joy over sinners repenting and coming home. Now, we, that's a wonderful message, and that was our message last week. But he didn't stop the story with the killing of the fatted calf. The story goes on. Because remember, I think who Jesus is really talking to are the scribes and Pharisees. Now Jesus talked to them all the time. And most of the time, it was rough. Whitewashed sepulchers, tombs. Beautiful on the outside, on the inside filled with dead men's bones. That doesn't sound like a warm, fuzzy icebreaker at the office meeting. That sounds like fighting words, right? Brood of vipers, I think is something that he said. A brood of vipers, a literal nest of snakes that are poisonous. Again, not warm, fuzzy feelings coming from Jesus when he calls you that. Over and over again, he called them hypocrites. You teachers of the law. You go out and make these guys out here twice a son of hell that you are. There's some really rough things said to the Pharisees. This, what we're about to read, is probably the only place that Jesus is offering tender hopefulness to the Pharisees. Because let's read the story of the older brother. Verse 25. Now his older brother, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he, the, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And Jesus stops. It's almost like a Doctor Who episode from the 1970s where it just stops. Cliffhanger. They may or may not pick the subject matter back up again. It just, it's over. The music comes up and the TARDIS flies away. Doesn't, like, what? It just ends. I want, I want us to dig into this this morning and I want you to think with me. I want you to see the difference between the father and the son, the oldest son. And I want you to see what Jesus is trying to communicate to the Pharisees. Let me just throw this in here real quick. None of us think we're Pharisees. Right? None of us think that we are. Let me just talk about me, and then you just fit yourself in here. Let me ask, just for a show of hands, online you can raise your hand too. Nobody will know but you, but it'll be helpful for the purpose of today. How many of you have been a Christian 20 years or longer? Raise your hand. Anybody 30 years or longer? 40 years? We'll just keep going. The longer you have been a Christian in a comfortable society, the greater the likelihood that you actually identify more with the Pharisee than you do the tax collector. Let's, let's look at it. His older son is doing stuff. He's working. He's in the field. He's doing his job. He's doing what's expected of him. He's doing what is right. He's not sinning. He's not with prostitutes. He's not insulting his father and taking the inheritance. He's not that guy. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Which would suggest maybe his heart is just a wellspring of righteousness and joy. Except when he finds out that the reason there's a party happening is because of his brother, look at verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. I don't know if you ever had any family gatherings where this sort of thing has happened. Has anybody had any family gatherings where somebody's mad and ticked off and won't come in and it's ruining the whole party? That's what's happening. The brother will not even go in because he's angry. And the reason he's angry is because it is not right to celebrate the return of a sinful betrayer. 
They need punished, not celebrated. Do you see where this parable is and what's going on and what Jesus is trying to communicate? He's trying to present an idea of God that they can't accept. They're like Jonah. I don't want to tell them in Nineveh. I don't want them to know. I want them to burn. I want them to know how right I am. I want them to know. I want them to die. It's a horrible, horrible place that many of us find ourselves in. More than we think. He's angry. He refuses to go in. But look at the Father's reaction. Let's contrast now what the Father does. His Father came out to Him. Exactly what the Father did to the first son. He does to the second son. He pursues the stiff-necked Pharisee son. And says He entreated Him. He doesn't rebuke Him. If it were me, and this was Abigail or Hannah or Sophia or one of my children that were acting this way, I would come out and say, you get your butt in there now. That's what I would say. And you shut up and you would like it. That's what I would say. Wise parental words. You get in there and you quit ruining this. You ungrateful prideful Pharisee child. I may start using that, Sophie. So So that's what we would probably do. We would not come out like the Father nine times out. We probably wouldn't be this way. Come out and entreat Him. We are pleading. We are understanding God is understanding of the Pharisees too. He's trying to help them too. God isn't just interested in tax collectors and prostitutes. He's also interested in hypocrites. He is. Look at how the son responds to the entreating, the the pleading of his father. Verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. The word serve in Greek makes it clear. It's the word not that a son makes to his dad. It's the word a slave makes to his master. So you are getting the picture of what is wrong in the heart and the mind of the Pharisee. He views his relationship to God completely and solely on what I have done, what I am doing, and by contrast, what you guys over here are not doing. I am. I never disobeyed your command. Servant, master, slave talk. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Not with you, Dad. I don't have any desire to have a celebration with you. I want to go out here and find the satisfaction in my soul elsewhere. And the satisfaction of my soul is being acknowledged for all the right that I do. 
all the rules that I keep, all the serving that I do. Are you seeing what the attitude is? Are you seeing what's broken in this relationship that he has? His relationship with his dad is skewed. But when this son of yours, notice it's not his brother. (laughs) It's his brother. Have you ever done this? I've done this with Jennifer. Uh, Your daughter. Now, it goes the other way too. She's done it to me. So if the girls uh, get a report back um, from the school, and it says something to the effect of excessive talking in class, then they're, they're my daughter at that point. Because, uh, more than likely, that trait came from, from me. But if there's some other problem, which Jennifer has so few, I don't even have an example for you. So, then it's, then it's your daughter. You know, what, you know what I'm getting at. This is what's happening here. He doesn't even want to be associated. Your son. Who's devoured your property with prostitutes. Is he wrong? He's not wrong. That's what he did. You killed the fatted calf for him. Let's look at the two mindsets here. Of the two brothers real quick. Scooch back up to verse 17. When the first son comes to his senses, he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Do you see that the instinct of the first son, while he's lost in sin, is he just wants to be a slave? Do you see? That's his instinct. The instinct of sinners is that they are unworthy and they would gladly come in to be a slave. And the reaction of the father is to make him what he is, which is a son, and to celebrate, which is what Jesus is trying to point out. Do you notice in a strange parallel that the Pharisee son is also talking like a slave? having refused the relationship and the satisfaction of being a son. He's trying to, they're both trying to be the same thing. The Pharisee is a slave. The son is remembering, i got to get out of this sin and I'll just be a slave. And what God is offering to both is you're supposed to be a son, not a slave. Not a slave. A son. I just wanted to point that out. Because it will be important. Let's go back to what the Father says. Verse 31. And he, the Father, said to him, Son, you are always with me. The word son makes it sound like my dad, when I'm in my 20s and I'm in my 30s and I'm in my 40s, and my dad will still refer to me as son. Son. But he's not referring to me as little boy. So when Mark is dealing with Colton, and he says, son, in a loving way, he's saying it to a little boy. 
Now, when Colton gets older, he may still call him son, but now the address is different. Correct? Is everybody following what I'm saying? The older... Okay, the word here in Greek really is, and some, I think the NIV has it different. Does anybody have an NIV? Nobody has a nearly inspired version? Okay, what, what, does, what does it say? I'm just kidding. Did that for Daniel. Does it, there in verse 31, what does it call him? My son, okay, so the NIV is the same. Does anybody else have one that says child? Yours says child? That is what the word is in Greek. It means the dad is communicating to this Pharisee son, my little boy, my child. It is a tender, loving moment. It is not a moment of rebuke. It is a moment of... Please, please see what's going on here. Son, you are always with me. Always. The Father's emphasizing the relationship, the closeness that they have, while the Pharisee's son is emphasizing rule-keeping and what he deserves pay me my wages for what I deserve. I deserve the honor of the rule keeping that I've been doing. And instead, you are giving the honor to the rule breaker. Look at verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus finishes this whole section with what he highlighted in the story of the sheep and the coin and the prodigal son and now the prodigal Pharisee, that when someone who is lost comes back into the family or comes in for the first time into the family of God, it is a cause to celebrate. It is a cause of joy. Whether you're coming from a tax collector background a harlot background, a just I've never known God background, or you're coming from a pharisaical, hypocritical, I'm in it for the rules and the prestige, and everybody knows that I'm a good person background, whichever background you're coming from, what God is wanting and desiring from his people is sonship and sons and daughters, not Not Pharisees that hypocritically do the right things on the outside, but on the inside despise the idea of forgiveness and grace. Hate the idea of forgiveness. check, Check your heart. We live in a city filled with drugs, filled with people that are doing things to their bodies. And as a result, I mean, our church was broken into three weeks ago. I would assume it's somebody desperate enough to break into a church because they need money for drugs. Is that a safe assumption? And it causes us to look at people down our nose like, I am so much better than you. You wretched soul. Now, I'm not suggesting that you would be as extreme as this Pharisee brother. But it checks my own heart to realize, is my heart in alignment with God's heart who rejoices every single time 
a sinner repents, is that where my heart is? Or is my heart in a place that says, they don't even deserve mercy and grace. I'm not going to help them. I mean, if somebody else can, that's great. I would like to remain doing my own thing, my own righteousness, my own family, keep our church clean, keep these people away. Do you see how that happens? And we justify it. That's all that the Pharisees were doing. That is all that they were doing. They were doing all the right things, but their hearts were a mess. Grace is something that we want for us. But we don't necessarily think that Dan Emerson should get the same amount that I do. Heaven forbid he get more. Jesus was dealing with this kind of attitude all the time. Dealing with the tax collectors and the sinners and the attitude of the Pharisees. And and saying things like, those who have been forgiven much, those same love much. Sometimes we hear people with dramatic testimonies that they were drug addicts or prostitutes or they were both or they were often just gross sin and then they had this encounter with God and they were radically saved and you hear that story and you think, oh my gosh, and, and you, they just ooze this love and thankfulness for what God has done. You guys know those stories, right? And then you look at yourself and I grew up in church and, and I lived my whole life for the Lord and... I had a couple rough spots, but nothing compared to that. And then if you're not careful, you can think, well, my testimony isn't all that good, A. And then B, you can think, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. I've never done anything like you. I've kept the rules the whole time. I've got a list of them in my head that I've kept and you haven't. And that's where I want to encourage you to see that Jesus has love, and he is trying to communicate to the Pharisees, guys, this is what heaven is like. It is not a place where we rejoice over the rules that were kept. It's a place where we rejoice over sinners who are saved to the glory of the grace of God. Because what does all of this point to? The grace of God. The grace and the mercy of God. That is the emphasis. The joy in heaven is going to last for eternity. If you take one important thing out of this, heaven is not some quiet place of misty clouds. There are fatted calves being killed and eaten, and there are celebrations filled with dancing and singing. I cannot wait. It's beyond us to even comprehend the celebration that heaven will be. It will be a celebration to the glory of God. Ephesians 1 says, to the praise of the glory of His grace. We will be glorifying God for His grace. And we will meet sinners. I don't know how it's going to work in heaven, but we'll meet sinners, maybe from 3,000 years ago, and know their story. And it will be one more reason to rejoice and shout and dance and say, God is great. He was great in the 5th century and the 1st century. He was great before we were keeping records. He's great in the 21st century. He has always been great, always been good, always been filled with grace. And we are going to worship and glorify Him for that throughout eternity. It will be awesome. It will not be quiet. 
It will not be somber. There, there will be quiet and somber moments. But, the, but there's going to be a characterization of joy in heaven. And it's going to be centered around the glory of God and how it was expressed in the salvation of sinners to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's going to be awesome. Jesus is trying to give them a glimpse. You've got heaven wrong. You've got mercy wrong. You've got grace wrong. You've got service wrong. Yes, you're supposed to serve God. No, you're not supposed to serve Him like you're doing something great. Acts 17 says, God is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. He doesn't need your service. You need Him to do His service. God's not in debt to you. You and I are in debt to Him. And this parable points all of it back to say, we are supposed to be glorifying God for His grace. We're supposed to be celebrating when others come into that grace. Five things and I'm shutting up. Our salvation, number one, is by grace through faith. That's what this story tells us. It's not by works. Heaven is characterized by joy and celebration. Number three, swine-covered sinners find cleansing and forgiveness in Christ. That's the prodigal number one. Pharisee burdened and hard-hearted sinners find cleansing and forgiveness in Christ. That's number four. And number five, our tendency is to turn to rules. The son in the swine pen turned, I'll just be a slave. The Pharisee was already chalking up all the things he had done as a slave to God. But instead of turning to rules, we should turn to His grace, to His mercy, and know that out of that is how I serve God. I'm not suggesting there aren't rules. I'm suggesting that we do not serve God to prove anything. We serve God out of the grace that He supplies so that we are always in a position of glorifying Him that I did not sin today in that way. Because we're still sinning. Okay? We're still going to sin. We're still going to mess up. But we're not going to take credit for when we successfully not look at pornography, when we successfully not yell at our wife, when we successfully not steal when we're filling out our tax forms, when we successfully do our jobs with a glad heart, when those things are happening, we say glory to God. And we recognize His grace and His work of the Spirit in our life. So if you're a Pharisee today, or not, if you're a sinner, you're a sinner in just different directions. Whichever direction your sin is pointing, there is grace and there is hope for you today. That is what Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees. This is the only place that you're going to find Jesus talking this way, I think, unless somebody find me another one, where Jesus talks to the Pharisees in a hopeful way and say, hey guys, I want you to see why I'm receiving sinners. I love them. And I love you too. Praise the Lord. It's encouraging. It's encouraging stuff. We're going to receive communion. Let's everybody stand up if you would.
John MacArthur actually wrote a book about this parable, and he concludes that the prodigal Pharisee son, we know how the story ends. They incite the crowds to kill Jesus. They rejected. They rejected the idea. But not all of them rejected. You read the book of Acts and you find out that there are a lot of Pharisees and scribes who became Christians. This morning, if you're online, we're receiving communion. We'd love for you to participate. But if ever there was a morning for us to say, Lord, I want my heart to be right with you. I don't want to be somebody who squanders the inheritance and goes and eats with the pigs, nor do I want to be the hypocritical Pharisee that judges my brother and sister in Christ for not living up to my standard. I want to be somebody who would be with the woman who lost the coin and rejoicing with her that afternoon. I want to be somebody who would have been with the shepherd rejoicing over the lost sheep that was found. And I want to be in the party at the home rejoicing because my brother has come home. I want to be that kind of Christian. If you don't know him this morning... He died for your sin. If you don't know Him this morning, the Bible says, repent, which means turn from where you are and turn to Him. Turn away from your sin. Turn to Him and confess Him as Lord and say, Jesus, I give you my heart. I give you my life. I believe you're the King of kings. I believe you were raised from the dead for my sin. I want to encourage you this morning, do that. Come see us afterwards. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this meal. We thank you for the broken body of Jesus it represents in the bread and the blood of Jesus of the new covenant that seals us to you in relationship that makes all of this prodigal son story possible. The rejoicing in heaven is when we experience what this meal says. It's your death, it's your burial, it's your resurrection by the power of God. It is you ascended on high at the right hand of majesty. It is the forgiveness of sin. It's declaring it today in remembrance of what you've done. God, I pray that this would sink into our heart what we are doing as a church for you, because of you and to you. So we take this meal together, rejoicing that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's do that together. Now, Lord, to you who are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine, according to the power at work in us, Lord, to you be glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.
And if anybody wants to come up and talk, we I will be up here. Praise the Lord. Enjoy. Oh, and there is a meeting going to be, uh, it'll be up in the banded gathering room here in about uh, 10 minutes for first impressions. Anybody in the ushering or the greeting?